This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. In today's age, it can be hard to find time to sit down and learn more. Read. It is not easy when social media and, I don't know... The Democratic primary is so addictive and time-consuming, you may think that you, like I, do not have time to sit down and read a book or try and better yourself. And that is why I recommend our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that condenses all kinds of nonfiction books into just 15 minutes or less of either reading or listening time. Now, a lot of the books available on Blinkist, I find this kind of surreal, are actually about productivity or mindfulness. Like, maybe if you need to condense books about productivity and mindfulness, you really need productivity and mindfulness books, right? So it seems strange to me that that's one of the big categories, but I confess that's one of the categories I've used the most. It allows me to look into these books to see if I actually want to invest in the whole book. The other thing I use Blinkist for is remembering books I've read in the past. There's actually a huge category of Blinkist books that are philosophy books and history books that you will probably dimly remember from your undergraduate days. Books like The Varieties of Religious Experience or Plato's Republic or Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan or Descartes' Meditation on First Philosophy. I swear to you, I've read all of those books. I remember nothing about them. So I downloaded the Blinkist version and On a couple of those, I've actually been like, oh, yeah. (laughs) It is very, very helpful. It will make you feel as though your undergraduate education or graduate education was actually worth something. Eight million people use Blinkist. It has a massive growing library, not just self-help and philosophy, but business and history as well. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash with friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us, even if some of those differences are about crazy beliefs. Because this is Conspiracy Month. And our final guest for Conspiracy Month is Anna Merlin, a senior reporter for Geo Media and the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. She is going to help us get our arms around the conspiracy octopus insofar as we can do that. We will also be sharing a collection of conspiracy theories gleaned from recent show guests who divulge to us what outlandish ideas they suspect might really be true. So our final guest for Conspiracy Month, Anna Merlin, coming right up. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to someone who also probably has to correct people about her, her how to pronounce her name. <laughs> um, we can be an object lesson for, for folks about the two yeah, different ways. Yeah, Anna versus Anna. Yeah. These are both correct. Right. In the well, vacuum. Well, not correct. Oh, well, I was going to say in a vacuum, they're both correct. But applied to one person or the other, there's only one correct one. That's that's right. Yes. I asked you for an excerpt just to kind of help us get started here. Do you, Did you bring something for us? 
I did. And I have to set it up a little bit. So this is from the very beginning of my book. And it's about my time at something called Conscious Life, which is an expo that happens every year in Los Angeles, which is sort of on the surface, like a new age and wellness expo. And underneath, it's actually a very sort of prominent hub for conspiracy theories. So I was just this section is about being there right after Donald Trump was elected, essentially. So here we go. On that balmy February day, Donald Trump has just been inaugurated and the runaway hot air balloon of his presidency is beginning to lift off the ground. Pizzagate, the conspiracy theory alleging that Hillary Clinton's campaign chair is affiliated with a secret pedophile ring run out of a D.C. pizza parlor, is still burning up Twitter threads and message boards and leaking repeatedly into the mainstream press, where it's disbelieved but still, after all, covered. The environmental activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a famous vaccine skeptic, quote-unquote, has announced that Trump asked him to chair a panel on vaccine safety. RFK Jr. is pushing the debunked claim that mercury in vaccines causes autism, and he argues that the most prominent medical bodies in the nation are covering it all up with help from a bought-off media. It's a surreal time. Conspiratorial beliefs that usually simmer below the mainstream for decades at a time are suddenly insistently pushing to the surface. The news is full of white supremacist groups and their suspicions of a shadowy Zionist world government. The concept of a deep state, a shadow regime, a secret body that's really in charge, has become so pervasive that members of Congress are talking about it on national television, and its prominence hasn't even begun to reach full force just yet. Even those flat earthers, one of the most fringe subcultures there is, besides those who believe the world is ruled by 12-foot lizards, have seen a real uptick in their numbers. The term fake news is everywhere, and there are acrid debates about misinformation, partisan news sources, bias, and lies. People I've been covering for years as a journalist devoted to subcultures are on the front pages and in Politico headlines, achieving a hallucinatory new level of fame. All right, good that you're dropping us off right in the middle here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you for basically summing up the whole kind of thesis of our conspiracy <laughs> month. And and I feel like you and I might be able to answer a question which has been floating around on the show, which is that uh, is this a, a a time of conspiratorial thinking that's different than others? And I don't know why it's taken me this long to like kind of have this clarity about it. But Mm -hmm. yes, it is. (laughs) It is. What makes you say that? Because we have a conspirator in chief. I think that that would be my answer as well. That is the defining difference. If it weren't for him, I don't think you could measure a difference necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I would say the answer that I give when I'm asked that question is that conspiracy theories are always around, they're always among us, and they are employed occasionally by by people in power and have been historically throughout American history and in other countries as well. But what we have right now is people who are disempowered and people in power alike using conspiracy theories at the same time. Like we're seeing the ways that they are useful across the spectrum of of politics and power. And especially in Donald Trump, we are seeing the ways that you know, would be authoritarian leaders try to use conspiracy theories to sort of rally their base against a common enemy and find a way to explain anything that they're not getting done, any criticism that they might face. Like he really is showing how useful conspiracy theories are as a mode of power and governance. I want to drill down on that because one of the other things that's been a, a thesis in in my way of, of entering mm. this world, for me approaching it, is that sometimes, you know, they really are after you, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, for, especially for marginalized groups, conspiracy theories can be a very rational way of framing the universe. Yeah, I have a whole chapter in my book about conspiracy theories among Black Americans. And the difference is that conspiracy theories among Black Americans tend to always tie back to an actual historical event. So there's a lot of distrust of the medical establishment because of things like the Tuskegee experiments. Uh, there's a belief among people in New Orleans that the levees were purposely blown up during Hurricane Katrina because in the 1920s, the levees were purposely blown up, uh, you know, during a different hurricane, just outside the city, not to drown it, right. but to save it. So it's, you know, like there's a lot of ways that conspiracy theories among marginalized groups, yeah, refer back to actual instances of oppression or horror. And I, we had Van Newkirk on in the previous episode to talk oh, about nice. this. And the way that he framed it, I thought was really great, which is he called conspiracy theorizing among at least, you know, uh, black Americans, uh, a kind of farmer's almanac way of looking yeah. at the world, which is that it's right enough of the time that you keep thinking that way. Yeah, you know? it's a defense <laughs> mechanism. It is 
predictive of a certain kind of systemic injustice. Right. There's sort of no harm in keeping up with them, which is um, Dr. John L. Jackson is somebody who's done some writing about conspiracy theories in hip hop, writing and research. Um, and he just kind of talks about it as a way to, yeah, keep current with things that you might need. Mm-hmm. Suspicious ideas that might, yeah, come into currency again that might be useful as a form of self-defense or, you know, a, a more, um, yeah, defensive way of looking at the world. And the way that I've thought about it, the different way that I've come to think about it is that it is in systems, right? That mm-hmm. marginalized people need to be able to think about systemic injustice and conspiracy theories are about systems, right? They are. Yes, yes. And most of us don't need to think about systems that way, right? That's what we privilege don't, is. Because those, right, because those systems work for us. Right. Those systems are fundamentally not something that we have to consider very much, you know, they, yeah, that's, that's a really good way to put it. So this brings us to, so why are so many white people thinking about systems, right? Right. Like, yeah, yeah. The the easy answer, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but it's the one top of mind is that white people have been made marginally less comfortable than they were. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, conspiracy theories are a response to a perceived threat, whether it's real or imagined. So, you know, during the Obama presidency, we saw this resurgence in militia groups and all of them were terrified, right? You know, Mm -hmm. and full of hate and thought that um, their guns were going to be taken from them and FEMA camps were going to be instituted and he was going to bring the one world order crashing in, Um, you know, and so it led to a real rise in conspiratorial thinking on the far right. Um, And we see the same thing like during the rise of the second Klan in the 1920s, you know, the, the economy was up until the, the crash, was doing well. But people were responding to, again, a, a perception that immigrants, outsiders, Black people were coming to take what was theirs, you know? So conspiracy theories are a response to threat, whether the threat is actually happening to you or not. You have a wonderful insight in your book where you talk about white people kind of um, co-opting conspiratorial thinking and co-opting mm. the idea of, of oppression. I can't remember exactly how you put it, but it's basically you didn't suffer enough to be able to think about, you know, the, whether or not the government is after you, right? Well, I was actually, I was thinking about it specifically in the UFO subculture, which mm-hmm. is, to be clear, a subculture that I'm very fond of generally <laughs> and one that I enjoyed like spending time in. But yeah, there is a lot of discussion among that group about Pro and, you know, government interference. Like there is a belief that the government is sort of infiltrating the UFO conversation with disinformation and plants and agents and things that, that, did happen to civil rights leaders in the 60s, happened during the Standing Rock movement to the water protectors. Like these are things that happened, but I think, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that they're happening to this predominantly white sort of hardcore UFO subculture that I was spending time in. And especially like a, a, a subculture that is for the most part, fair, you know, fairly privileged, right? I mean, like, because, you know, definitely white Americans have been spied on by the government, but usually because they're doing something that's a threat to the system, right? Well, because they're participating in, like, the peace movement. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, lots of Quakers, yeah. lots of white Quakers <laughs> have been spied on by the FBI. I mean, that's a—yeah, like, in, in 2010, it was revealed that the FBI was instituting surveillance against any number of peaceful anti-war groups uh, for, you know, no particular reason. Yeah. You know, this This actually makes me think of something that, that, that I hadn't thought of before, which is that— so one of the questions that I've had in, in looking at conspiracy theories and conspiracists and their subcultures is, is is this harmful? You know, is this bad? Mm. Uh, right. Is it, is it a, t- a problem to to think about conspiracies just in general? Like we could point to specific racist, right. you know, conspiracy theories as, yes, that's a problem. But is it is believing not just in UFOs, but in a government, you know, conspiracy to suppress knowledge of UFOs? Mm. I'd like to just well, draw, draw that distinction. Maybe that's a hard one for me specifically because I do believe in UFOs and I do believe that there was probably government suppression of information about UFOs. So um, I might be biased on that one. Uh, I would say that in general, I don't think that I think that conspiracy theories are just an extension of our natural discourse. You know, the idea that maybe there is secret knowledge, that there is something that we don't know or that's being kept from us is... I think fundamentally, especially in the United States, a reasonable part of the discourse. But, you know, it's like anything else at the most extreme edges. Yeah, it is harmful. Well, 
I think I agree with you because I also, of all the things that we could talk about believing, like I think there is a life on other planets that the government has actually, we we actually know now, right? Has at least fudged our knowledge of it, you know? Yes. Like not an active like conspiracy of, of, of actual bodies or anything, but there's definitely stuff they didn't tell us. There was a hidden Department right. of Defense program that was devoted to UFO research, and the, the majority contract was given to a friend of former Nevada Senator Harry Reid. Yeah. Who supposedly does believe in UFOs himself. That's one of the reasons. I mean, who knows? Maybe, sure. Maybe that is, he was, it's all payola. <laughs> he didn't believe. I mean, but, I think it can be both. I mean, Nevada, you know, they got big skies out there. You can see real well. So, but to bring back to my my thinking about whether or not there's such a thing as a harmless conspiracy, hmm. I think I think we could probably come up with one. But but in talking about the Quakers that have been spied on and the civil mm-hmm. rights leaders that have been spied on, the thing that leapt to my mind was the idea that one thing that might be negative about mm-hmm. conspiratorial thinking by privileged people, mm-hmm. especially, is that they're putting all this time and energy into a fight that doesn't need it, right? Like, why don't you take your distrust of the government, which is somewhat justified, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and put it to use, you know, protesting the forever war? What about that? Well, I think it can be really hard to tell what is the most reasonable use of our time and what isn't. You know, Mm -hmm. that's part part of the problem is that our perception of the government and what they are or aren't doing has become sort of understandably pretty warped as a result of just a really poor transparency on their part. So yeah, I think it's it's easy to say in the abstract, like, why aren't you worried about the real issues? And that's something that came up for me a lot with uh, Pizzagate folks. I was like, you know, if you are so worried about sexual violence, like, my God, let me let me direct you to some places where your where your outrage could be better used than the idea that, you know, you need to bust into a pizza parlor with a gun and rescue these non-existent child uh, sex slaves. That's a that's a great parallel. And I, and I mm-hmm. realize that, like, that's, um, you know, it is imp- unkind to ever judge, like, someone else's use of time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. we generally should probably be generous about that. And it's always yeah. easy to judge someone else's, you know? Absolutely. Everybody else's priorities are fucked up. Mine are fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing the thing that keeps coming to mind is, is not so much, like, you should be doing X and not Y, but more like you have you are thinking in the right way in terms of like mm-hmm. the government is is not necessarily good to people who who want to resist it right mm-hmm. but you're directing it towards this in this way that you're ne- you're not going to get any results you know you're not yeah. going to you're not going to actually be able to 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 the revolution will not begin you know, hmm. if you want a revolution, um, which maybe they don't want a revolution. Maybe that's actually what I'm what my mistake is in in analysis. And by revolution, I guess I mean for all the knowledge to become, you know, open. Sure. What the UFO subculture calls disclosure, the idea yeah. that one day the doors will be thrown open and we'll know everything about aliens, UFOs, secret space programs, what have you. Right. Right. Um, I do think that there are some folks who are in the very deep end of the pool who might not know what to do with their time Mm -hmm. if the thing that they're fighting for actually came to pass. And certainly for, you know, what are referred to in my book and elsewhere as conspiracy entrepreneurs, for those people who are making a living or fame off of the idea of, you know, someday I'll be able to reveal the next big revelation, but until then, stay tuned. You know, these people who kind of rely on a cliffhanger model, yeah, they they don't actually want the secrets to be revealed either. You know, Alex Jones would be out of business tomorrow. I think that's—I'm glad you brought up the entrepreneurs, the uh, conspiracy grifters, mm. because I, that is an important uh, part of the culture that we should maybe separate out from people who are genuinely well-meaning— Perhaps, or, or at well, least yeah. earnest. <laughs> and a lot of us believe in conspiracy theories. I think that's an important thing to note is like the right. 50% of Americans are one in three. A lot of us believe in at least one conspiratorial idea. But yeah, so the, the difference between you or I believing in UFOs and what Alex Jones has been doing for the last, whatever it is, 25 years. Yeah, there's a, there's a distinction there. When you dove into this subculture, did you wind up finding what you expected to find? Um, I think that there are a few things that surprised me. One was 
The way that conspiracy cultures gave sort of meaning and purpose and community to people, that was something that I had never really considered. The idea that, you know, you kind of fall into something because it makes your life feel more exciting. It makes you feel like you're part of something. It makes you feel like you're participating in a system that can often feel very opaque. You know, people really felt like they were in fighting, you know, to free the child sex slaves or whatever. They felt like they were responding to what they perceived as an evil and tyrannical government. They thought that they they were doing something real and they were meeting a lot of other people who felt that way, too. You know, and so at the same time, those people become progressively more and more isolated from their families and their friends and their real communities because most people are not coming with them on this journey. So it's kind of cruel in a way, the way that people become so enmeshed in these movements that they become more and more isolated at the same time that they really feel like they're uh, actually becoming part of something. You had a, a recent piece about your trip to an autism. I don't want to call it an autism conference, actually. That's not what it was. It is. Uh, autism One is an organization that holds itself out as a research organization for parents and experts uh, regarding autism. What it actually is, is sort of the main hub of the anti-vaccine world. They would dispute that, but that is that is my perception of it. And I think of that piece because in the piece you talk about people desperate for answers, parents wanting to mm-hmm. know, you know what to do, and yeah. that they seem quite earnest, tragically earnest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, you know, the most common story that I hear having covered the anti-vax movement for a while is that people see see a change in their child that they perceive as being linked to specifically the MMR vaccine. Usually now, um, sometimes it's the Gardasil vaccine, the HPV vaccine, but they see a change in their child or their child gets a diagnosis of being on the autism spectrum and they, you know, they start Googling, they start looking for answers and not infrequently they fall into this world that tells them, you know, actually these vaccines that you trusted cause autism. The government doesn't care about you. Your doctor doesn't care about you. Only we care about you and only we can provide you with real answers and with recovery because that is that is really stressed is the idea that if you do the right thing, that maybe your child won't be autistic anymore. I think it's really important to stress something that you do mention in your piece, which is this Mm. entire grift is based on ableism, right? Yes, it is. It's based on the idea that having an autistic kid is fundamentally the worst thing that can happen. And I mean, even some lines that we cut from that piece just for length, it's, you know, one of the speakers referred to autism as the end of humanity. Mm. Like, and a lot of autistic self-advocates have talked about this, this idea that like, you know, that the movement, the anti-vax movement is built on dehumanizing them and making them sound like who they are is is unacceptable and is, you know, um, going to be a burden on society and that they are, you know, that they are that they are less human than other people. It is a very um, stark and sort of disturbing way to talk about autistic adults, especially. And I think that piece of, you know, structural inequality and, and, and bigotry is important mm. to think about, important to realize it's there. When you pan back and talk about uh, the anti-vax movement, as you describe it in your piece, as a radicalization Mm -hmm. engine. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these, I think that these parents and purported experts would say, you know, we're not talking about people with autism who can do for themselves. We're talking about people who are, you know, nonverbal, in pain, not potty trained at, you know, an advanced age. We're talking about those people. But I mean, that that distinction isn't made when Mm -hmm. you go into those worlds. It's just presented as autism in general is a horrible thing. And, you know, it's going to afflict more and more of our children, and that's going to be the end of humanity. It's a very um, sort of apocalyptic vision of how, how how the world is. And if you have an apocalyptic vision that's based on something that, you know, let's say it's, it's you know, uh, rotten fruit of the spoiled tree, whatever that metaphor is, mm-hmm. then it's maybe not as surprising that you can go from being an earnest parent looking for answers to someone who believes in much more— Uh, recognizably politically radical ideas. Yeah, I mean, so Autism One's like director of online communications is this woman who I believe entered that world through getting uh, an autism diagnosis for her child. I'm I'm not sure because I didn't have a chance to talk to her in detail, but she is now like a a very um, out and out QAnon person and, you know, is promoting all of these other extremely uh, dire conspiracy theories on social media. She had QAnon celebrities come to Autism One and do a panel, um, and it was called the Bigger Picture Panel. 
So is this idea, you know, that you're coming to see the small picture of your child's health and then we're going to, you know, we're going to show you the light. We're going to red pill you. Right. And then you're going to you're going to be opened up to this whole other world of things you should be very angry and afraid of. And again, like there is this weird parallel to, you know, what what we social justice warriors sometimes call wokeness. Right. Like there's Mm -hmm. a strange way in which what's happening in that conspiracy subculture is a a perverted form of what happens to someone when they realize what actual structural injustice exists, right? Right, and they would argue that our perception of structural injustice is wrong and theirs is right, but it's worth noting that a lot of people in what I would call the conspiracy world refer to themselves as being in the truth community. Like, Mm -hmm. that is a term that I hear frequently. So, yes, the idea that they have been awakened to these larger um, sinister sinister systems and are trying to bring other people with them is very, very common. And again, like, I just want to, I just feel like I want to knock some heads together because there are sinister systems. There are. They're just not the ones you think. They're not what they think you are. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be so agnostic about it, but in a way I kind of am because the the more people I talk to, the more I'm, like, uncertain of, you know, whether it's even a good good use of my time or our time trying to get them to see my particular worldview. I'm more interested in, you know, trying to figure out the the harms that are actually being done to society or in the case of anti-vax conspiracy theories to, to people's children and tr- trying to minimize harm while allowing people to have whatever fucking ridiculous idea they want to have, you know, and that's a really fine line. It's hard to do that. I want to talk more about that, but let, I think we have to take a quick break. So okay. we'll, we'll be right back. How often do you think about your socks? I will tell you it is a bad sign if you think about them a lot. If you think about your socks while you have them on, you are probably wearing the wrong socks. I happen to love the sponsor that provides my socks, which is Bombas. Bombas, they make all kinds of socks from, uh, you know, dressier to sport. I love their no-show socks. There are probably other socks of theirs that I could compliment. Um, my husband likes uh, their athletic socks. He says that they, um, I think it might say here in the copy, they like stay up without like leaving a mark on your ankle. They're made from super soft, natural cotton. Every pair comes with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's comfy but not too thick. They have many colors, patterns, length, and style. They look great in the gym, at the office, or out on the town, although... I'm curious as to how your socks would become visible out on the town. Bombas are what feet daydream about. And for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash friends today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash friends for 20% off. Everyone wants their home to look and feel great. Luckily, snow makes that incredibly simple. They create trend-proof, beautiful, functional pieces made for how you live. Whether you just got the keys to your first place or you're looking to upgrade the pieces you've had forever, Snow has home goods that are practical and striking to look at. Our home has snow robes. I got mine first. I told my husband how awesome it was. He kept his, like, hanging on the hook forever. And then the other day, I got home, and he strolled into the living room wearing his very luxurious uh, snow robe and told me he felt like Hugh Hefner. Um, It is indeed a very comfortable robe. He looked quite dashing in it, I have to say. And it is really, really comfortable. But without it—when I say Hugh Hefner, it doesn't, like, look tacky. It just looks— Luxurious, actually rather subtle in many ways, but it was funny to see my husband in the living room wearing his robe. Snow has received rave reviews from Vogue, Fast Company, Apartment Therapy, and more. They make not just robes, but also durable, dishwasher-safe porcelain dinnerware, and then probably more expectedly, sheets, duvets, towels, and whatnot. It's the home collection of your dreams, priced for your reality. And right now, Snow is offering our listeners $30 off their first purchase of $150 or more when you go to snow.com slash friends. That's S-O-N-W-E home.com slash friends to get $30 off your first order. 
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. I'm really glad you you brought up your own kind of ambivalence or agnosticism about whether or not we should do something about these people. And I, I want to be very clear, like, when I talk about knocking heads together, I'm speaking metaphorically and gotcha. also <laughs> and, and more just like an impulse and not something that I'm, I don't know if I'm actually going to go out and, and, and try to evangelize. Um, because I think there is justified ambivalence about covering the conspiracy culture or truth culture, whatever you, mm-hmm. truth community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you've articulated part of it. Um, and I, I have you read the Oxygen of Amplification piece that came out No, last I haven't, year? but I have definitely, I'm familiar with this this argument that yeah. by covering things, we amplify them. I was, I was on an episode of on the media where we talked about that specifically with covering white supremacists and the ways that you can cover the sort of resurgence of, of white supremacist groups in this country without giving them air. I think it's really, really, really hard, though, and people disagree on where the line is. But certainly, like, we can we can see the way that that happened with QAnon. QAnon didn't, didn't necessarily—I I don't know if it got a ton more— Converts as a result of this, but we do know that somebody showed up last summer carrying a Q sign at a Trump rally, and it generated like hundreds of explainers about Q and what QAnon is. And it became like, it went from being something that I would mention to people and they'd be like, what are you talking about? To being something that was very, 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 very well known. So we can certainly call that amplification. I think there's a separate question of whether it made more people part of that movement. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure that there are social scientists and researchers who are looking at that. There are. I think that it, no one's going to have a definitive answer, at right. least not in our lifetimes, about this. I do think that one critique of of the pattern of coverage that I, I can call, we can call oxygen of amplification, is that you can kind of correct course if you do what it sounds like you're aiming for, which is to shift the coverage away from the people doing the conspiracizing, 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 conspiracy, conspiracizing, conspiracizing, from the people who are the conspiracists. (laughs) If you shift the attention away from the conspiracists themselves or the white supremacists Mm -hmm. themselves and instead turn your focus to the people that have been impacted by these beliefs. I think there are two ways to do it. One is to talk about impact, and the other is to talk about the mechanisms by which people are able to affect harm, whether we're talking about, you know, the money being given to these groups, whether we're talking about social media and tech platforms and, you know, the way that they're literally able to amplify their message through things like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, you know, so I'm much more interested in talking about structure and talking about, yeah, structural harm than I am in, you know, talking to Richard Spencer for you know, yet another interminable interview about why he thinks I should go back to Israel. You know, like it's just, it's not, it's it's not really a good use of anybody's time. But I, I sort of understand why the first wave of coverage of all these issues tends to tend toward what later looks like amplification because you feel like you need to explain these people's ideas. And it's like, you, you kind of don't, you can, you can explain their ideas pretty quickly and then get onto the business of how they are able to spread them and who they hurt when they do. You mentioned Richard Spencer telling you to go back to Israel. Oh, he didn't specifically tell me that. Um, somebody else has told me to go back to Israel. I'm using Richard Spencer as a stand-in because people will know who he is. Um, the people who have told me that I should go back to Israel are actually much more um, blatant, organized, militiaized white supremacist groups that I've met in Kentucky when I was working on the book. And, Just to clarify, and, so Richard Spencer doesn't sue me. And also to clarify, that is because you're Jewish? I am Jewish, yeah. Okay, we, it would be somewhat unusual for them to just say it out of nowhere, but... Um, I mean, they kind of say it out of nowhere when they get a look at me, but you know. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask you about the the experience of reporting on this stuff. Sure. Like, what was the hardest thing you had to do? 
Uh, I would not say that the white supremacists were super, super difficult emotionally or whatever. It's, you know, um, uh, well, okay, that's not true. Exactly. The the part that caused me a little bit of stress or agita or whatever you want to call it is that, um, as I write about in the book, we went to two events. We went to a public event that was a rally that turned into a shouting match between Antifa and the white supremacists. And then the night before, um, the photographer I was traveling with and I went to a private event on private land. And so to get to the private event, we just followed a convoy of white supremacists and they didn't know that we were coming. And so on the way up there, I was a little bit like, is this a, is this a bad idea? You know, is this going to be a bad idea? And then we got up there and we realized there were other journalists there too, and they were sort of expecting us. And I, I, I felt okay about it. Um, so I did have a minute of wondering if I was... Um, putting my safety at risk. But like, is it, is it like emotionally hard to hear people tell me that the Holocaust didn't happen or that I should go back to Israel? Not really, because they're wrong. It just isn't, you know, it's like, it's like ridiculous. It's like telling me that my, that my parents are, are elves. It just doesn't, it, it's meaningless. Yeah. So what was hard then? Was any part I mean, of it I hard? would say, well, so the, the hard part for me, if we're talking specifically about the book is stuff like Pizzagate, because people brought their children to that rally. So people's children were standing there listening to these incredibly graphic fictional uh, descriptions of sexual abuse. But like I would I would consider that to be very appropriate, inappropriate. You know, I have I have um, friends, kids who I'm very close to. And so the idea of bringing like my little friends who are five and nine to an event where they're being exposed to that kind of stuff, I consider that harmful for kids. And so that was um, that was much harder for me than anything having to do with white supremacists as I believed that I was seeing emotional damage being done to kids in front of me. I just keep coming back to whether or not it, it I think for me, hmm. it would be frustrating to cover this stuff on a regular basis uh-huh. because um, I would want mm-hmm. to, I don't know if I'd, I can say I'd want to tell people they're wrong, but it might just cause me interior anguish. I mean, I do tell people that they're wrong, and I think that part of my job is to tell people that they're wrong to their faces and to see how they respond, which is also why I tell, you know, Nazi types that I'm Jewish, um, you know, like in in the right setting, or tell them that I think that vaccines are safe and effective. I think that one of our responsibilities as journalists is to be like, I know that what you're saying is factually wrong, and I want to understand why you still believe it. You know, but yeah, there is some kind of math that you have to do about like, how much time am I going to spend arguing with someone about something that is objectively true and factual? And how much time am I going to spend trying to understand how that idea lodged in their heads and the systems and mechanisms that brought that idea to their feet? You know, how how long have you been covering these subcultures in total? I mean, oh, um, I would say that I started doing a little bit of it when I was working in Dallas, which was, um, gosh, about eight years ago now. I wrote a little bit about the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, which is a like 9-11 truther movement that's based there and started thinking about this stuff and was also interested in it, you know, casually as a as an observer, if not consumer of conspiracy media. But I really didn't start covering it seriously and thinking about it intensively until I went on this cruise for conspiracy theorists in uh, 2015. That was really when I started thinking about it as a, as a social force. So very recently compared to lots of other people. I guess I'm still going to ask you the question that I have uh, about anyone who spent a considerable amount of time covering this, which mm-hmm. I would say three years is still a considerable amount of time. Yeah. Have you ever seen anyone walk back? Hmm. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. So I would say that I don't see people walk back so much as I see them um, sort of change course and they, they get onto a new obsession, hmm. you know, which, um, but I, I, have, I have talked to one person on Twitter who told me that he was a pretty avid con- consumer of conspiracy media and came to believe that it was all bullshit. Um, and he was the only person that I've ever spoken to who said that he had been part of this subculture and then got out of it. That in itself fascinates me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where are the ex-conspiracy theorists? It doesn't seem like there's right. very many of them. Well, you know, I guess actually I've talked to a couple friends who were like 9-11 truthers when they were younger because I'm of the generation that, you know, Loose Change came out when I was— um, 
however old that I was. And I knew people, (laughs) however old, I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah, Um, math is hard. But so, yeah, Loose Change, I know, was pretty influential for, like, people among my sort of lefty friend group in college. And I guess people kind of walked away from that. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, there's all this research that like the deeper in you are, the harder it is to get out, the harder it is to change your mind, the more that conspiratorial thinking starts to resemble like religious faith. So, you know, I guess I know people who are like casual consumers of conspiracy media who stopped and kind of aged out of it. But the people that I'm meeting at like these rallies and conferences and whatever, I don't subsequently hear from them and have them be like, actually, I was completely wrong. And maybe it'll happen in the future, but it's it's not super common by my estimation. That it only gets deeper idea. Um, the people there's yeah. only one one direction in the pool. Well, or that the thing that you become invested in might change, but that your overall sense of sort of suspicion and disaffection is unlikely to improve. You know, conspiracy theories are the symptom and not the disease, as I always say. And the disease, you know, is fundamentally a feeling of isolation and frustration and sort of a feeling that the systems of power in this country are so opaque that you can't influence them. And that is something that's unlikely to get better for most people. Mm -hmm. They're unlikely to really start feeling like they have a direct sort of impact on the, the systems that govern their lives. Especially since I think you cite a study in the book that people who believe in conspiracy theories are less likely to vote. Yeah, there is there is some evidence to suggest that if you believe in a conspiracy theory about something, you are sort of more mm, resigned is one way to put it. This I think it's the University of Kent. They did a study that like people who are exposed to conspiracy theories about climate change being a hoax are like less likely to recycle or, you know, a conspiracy theories about rigged voting, you're less likely to want to vote. I mean, and it makes sense because a lot of conspiracy theories fundamentally say, you know, you cannot influence the systems of power. They are happening way over your head in a smoke-filled room somewhere, you know, possibly in space. And, uh, you know, why even bother? Which um, there's this book that I keep talking about called Fortress Russia, which is about conspiracy theories in post-Soviet Russia. It's an academic book, but it's very, very readable. Um, and it's fundamentally about the way that conspiracy theories were used to sort of aid Vladimir Putin's rise and then sort of work in contemporary Russia. And one point that is made in that book and elsewhere is that one thing that um, authority figures do in using conspiracy theories is to sort of float the idea that maybe um, the systems of power are so entrenched that you shouldn't even bother trying to change them. And also it's so hard to understand the truth of a situation that you should stop trying, you know, that you should become resigned and just kind of kind of back off. It's ironic that that's the exact kind of conspiracy theory that the Russian trolls tried to instill among black people in America, let's say. Yeah, totally. 2016. That that actually the the people who supported Trump are now in a place where that way of thinking may affect them. And I was just, you know, thinking uh, in a Machiavellian way, okay, so Trump may never win a majority popular vote. We just need to spread more conspiracies in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio. If we can just (laughs) (laughs) target those states for conspiracy thinking. Um, Uh, I know, know, not a good idea. Um, I mean, one thing that is interesting, though, is like, you know, Trump talked so much during the election about rigged voting and, you know, uh, his supporters talked about the idea that Obama was never going to let go of, you know, the reins of power. He wasn't going to exit the Oval Office. That was a big talking point among the far right. And now people who oppose Trump are are doing the same thing, are suggesting that Trump is not going to leave office, that he's going to rig voting, though. In, in folks' defense, he has made jokes about not leaving office. Right. So it's it's a little more um, apparent where that's coming from. And the Republican Party has rigged voting. Yes, also. So also there's that. There's so, that. Yeah. <laughs> right. As part of Conspiracy Month, we started asking all of our guests what are the conspiracy theories they believed in, and they told us. You can check the show notes if you don't recognize the voices. 
a conspiracy theory that I believe is the idea that the government is probably hiding what they know about UFOs or aliens or alien visitation. The JFK assassination, I, I think, is uh, you know probably the one that I that I find most uh, intriguing or or believable. The idea that there was you know more than one gunman during my postpartum phase with my daughter in 2004. I watched all these videos on YouTube about the conspiracy theories about 9/11 being carried out by the American government. Mm -hmm. I watched video after video after video, and I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) They didn't fly a plane into the Pentagon. It was actually a missile. Because I was so postpartum, like my brain was so out of like, I like chewed up those videos like it was like gospel. And um, I've had to slowly come down from that. Bigfoot? <laughs> really? It's actually kind of a native thing. Um, there's a lot of stories in native communities about um, Bigfoot type creatures and and an insistence on them being uh, real. So I'm going to go Bigfoot. I don't know if you've seen this thing that um, this accusation that Chuck E. Cheese, uh, their pizzas are, they're oddly shaped. And so the theory <laughs> is that that's because they have a bunch of old pizzas and combine them together. <laughs> So, you know, Chuck E. Cheese has denied this, but, uh, but but I think the evidence for it is pretty good. The thing that I am fascinated by, and I'm pretty sure it's not true, is the conspiracy that we did not go to the moon. And it all rests on my skepticism of the ability of NASA and the United States to put together all the moving pieces they needed to go to the moon. So it's like, which of the two things do I think is less complicated? Um actually sending somebody to the moon or faking the moon landing. And I don't know yet. (laughs) The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, the New Yorker holds people and power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Both online and in print, the New Yorker covers a full range of topics. Politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, popular culture and the arts, fiction, food, humor, and cartoons. New Yorker writers write beautifully on subjects that readers may not have put a lot of thought into previously, but end up finding themselves delighted and fascinated by. I believe that the er subject in this regard is John McPhee's writing on dirt and water, which, as you might expect, those topics do not sound like they would be compelling, but he's written thousands of words on them, and those stories are always amazing. Then there are the stories that you know you're going to like, but that New Yorker writers handle so beautifully, it's like you never read about them before. Gia Tolentino recently had a piece about E. Jean Carroll's rape accusations against Trump that galvanized me and made me cry at the same time. Other New Yorker writers include Evan Osnos, a Pulitzer Prize finalist who's been a New Yorker staff writer since 2008. He's written about Mark Zuckerberg and North Korea. John Cassidy covers politics and economics and has written on topics ranging from intelligence failures to the economics of John Maynard King's. And then, of course, there's Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow, whose work on the Me Too era is probably familiar to you all. Now you can get 12 weeks for just $6, regularly $12, and you will get a New Yorker tote bag and home delivery of the print edition each week Unlimited access to NewYorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, access to their apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 and the tote bag. Go to NewYorker.com slash friends. You will save 50%. Go to NewYorker.com slash friends. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if you eat all the green salads and kale smoothies, you're still not going to get all of the essential nutrients you need on a daily basis. And that is why you should try Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. They have other vitamins for men. But there's also Ritual for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients that most of us don't get enough of from food itself. And in their clean, absorbable forms with no additives or ingredients that can do your body more harm than good. There are two easy-to-take capsules that provide nine nutrients you need for a strong foundation for your health. I've spoken about this many times, but I do love Ritual. I love the minty taste. I love how cool they look. I love that they resupply you on a regular basis so you don't have to remember to go get vitamins. And I love that they don't bother my stomach if I take them in the morning on without having eaten anything. 
So those are my selling points for Ritual. You should try it yourself. Ritual is traceable and transparent for obsessive label readers. All of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, allergen-free ingredients are on the label for all the world to see. And again, they deliver. And a subscription is easy to start. It's easy to snooze. I have snoozed mine in the past. They don't ask you to jump any hoops. You just say stop for a while, and they stop for a while. It's only a dollar a day to try and have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off their first three months. Fill the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. I'm glad you brought up sort of the partisan flavor here and also the ways that sometimes this can can flip, the partisanship can flip, because because you do in the in your book at least make a gesture towards saying that there's there is an a, an opposite reaction, if not an equal reaction, as far as conspiratorial thinking. And you talk a little bit about the Russia resistance grifters, I guess I would call them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think resistance grifter is the right word. Yeah. Um, so there is some research that suggests that conspiracy theories are as common on the right as on the left. Um, Joseph Yusinski and Joseph Parent, who are academics from uh, U- University of Florida, have have talked about that. I'm not sure that I think that the, um, the impacts of conspiracy theories on the right and the left are the same. Mm. But yeah, definitely we saw conspiracy theories about the Trump presidency coming from both never Trumpers and the left about him being, yeah, a Putin puppet, um, you know, a Machiavellian candidate, et cetera, et cetera. So that was definitely a thing. It was definitely part of the discourse. And people like Louise Mensch, you know, did gain some amount of following by making those claims. Yeah. And there is sort of, and actually I would kind of go back to maybe this is not the best use of your time complaint because the I have family members who are of the Donald Trump is a Russian asset way of thinking, right? Totally, yes. And that um, there's any day now going to be some kind of blockbuster report, and we'll finally have it. Pro- we'll finally be proof that he, that he didn't actually win, right. and all of that. And what I get disclosure fresh- a yeah. day when all the all the secrets will be revealed. Yeah, exactly. And those family members think that I'm on the same side as them because we vote the same way. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what I want to do with those people is be like, can't you just go to a Black Lives Matter protest instead? Like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Right. I mean, I, I, it, in, it's it's one of those things where, like, I know it, it, where I feel like you are spinning wheels thinking mm-hmm. that, that, that that Trump is going to be taken care of in this duis ex machina way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. So let me let me make a little plug here for, for tearing down the system as it currently exists. The, that fundamentally, the idea that Trump is a Putin puppet and all that needs to happen is him taken out of office is not a structural critique, right? Mm-hmm. It is it is a it is a essentially a claim that the structure as it currently exists is fine. It's just Donald Trump that's the problem, mm-hmm. which ignores everything that brought us Donald Trump and everything about even, you know, the fact that somebody cannot win the popular vote in this country, you know, can be mm-hmm. a very unpopular candidate in a lot of ways and still be the president of the United States seems like more the problem. Um, but yeah, you know, it is it is very much a desire for this um, this resolution in the form of him just being, you know, lifted out of the White House by one of those like claw hands that, mm-hmm. um, you know, those arcade games, you know, and then everything will be fine, which yeah. I, I wish I believed that. That sounds comforting. I do think that unfortunately or fortunately, unfortunately, because things have just continued to be, be bad and uh, the Mueller report was not the some kind of like uh, he was not frog marched out of the Oval Office. Yeah. Some of the people that I know are starting to reconsider what they think is the problem. You know. Yeah, maybe. But they're also, it's interesting to me that this idea of hidden indictments, like secret indictments, is gaining so much currency among those folks, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe not Maybe not your friends, but the idea that, no, there has to be something that's still going to come out, some secret document. Isn't it that's weird that going that's, to, a, that's a inverse of Pizzagate? Yeah, it's a QAnon thing also. Like the yeah. idea that there are secret indictments somewhere that are going to take out your, you know, loathed political opponents is, yeah, now a thing among sectors of both the right and the left, which is amazing to me. And in, for both of those sets, I would say 
it is an, an atypical form of conspiracy thinking because it is a belief in the system. It is like this yes. this idea that no 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 this, what we're what, what's happening now is the anomaly. <laughs> yeah, that the system is currently working that we just can't see it, <laughs> and that eventually we will get proof that everything was right all along and the adults were in charge all along. Which again sounds great. Um, that must be a nice thing to think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I let's talk about nice things to think um, mm. as we wrap here because. You spoke about how it, the more you covered this, the more agnostic you become about trying to actually convince people. Yeah, agnostic or resigned, maybe resigned. is another word. Agnostic <laughs> sounds better. Resigned depressing. Sure. Um, I, I want to be a little less depressed because I want to think about, I guess, it, maybe just thinking about structure here, mm-hmm. not convincing individual people. But, right. But what are right. the structural solutions? Because Van, right. for instance— when we talked about, like, what would it take to have black Americans, you know, not engage in conspiratorial thinking? And he was basically mm. like, well, you'd have to get rid of the conspiracies, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's a book that I really, really love called Real Enemies. That's by a, a You cited a lot. I, I want to read it. Yeah. It's incredible. It's so, so, so good. I, that's the, one of the only times I've ever been starstruck doing an interview is when I got to interview Kathy Olmsted, who wrote that book. But she makes the point, and then I echo it in my book, that fundamentally, if you want conspiracy theories to go away, you need to build a more just, equitable, and transparent society. And it will take a really long time, and then you will you will get the, res- the result that you want, you know, which is that people will be less suspicious of systems of power because they won't need that suspicion. And if it doesn't take a long time, if you're looking for quick solutions, it's probably a conspiracy theory. Yeah, though I would say one quick solution that I would give people is if your your dad is spending a bunch of time parked in front of Fox News and is suddenly yelling about Q, uh, take him outside. Make him more, <laughs> make him less isolated. So many conspiracy theories I see, so many conspiracy consumers that I see are people who are extremely isolated, you know, and don't have a lot of contact with their IRL communities. They don't have a strong sense of one-to-one purpose or an idea of how they can make positive change in the world. And I, maybe this is idealistic, but I genuinely believe that if some of those people had a better thing to give their time to, if it was shown to them, maybe, maybe they would go that way. Maybe. Sometimes when people ask me, what should I do, you know, in these terrible times, especially if I have a a loved one who's a Trump supporter or worse, um, the thing that I suggest is uh, go volunteer to walk dogs. Um, Sure. Because it's a non-political thing that you, I assume, would have fun doing. You know, I love dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it, it gives you something to do and believe in together that isn't the TV, right? Yeah. You know, I had a lady come up to me at an event I did in Texas and ask me what to do about her husband, who believes in a lot of really out there conspiracy theories. And, you know, we were talking about it for a little bit. And I said, you know, does it does it impact your life together? And she said, no, he's a he's a wonderful husband. Um, and the stuff he believed in was not like Pizzagate or Q. It was more like along the lines of aliens and stuff. And I said, you know, d- respectfully, this seems pretty harmless. It actually seems like your relationship is not really impacted. Your His relationship with the rest of your family isn't really impacted. It just means that you're occasionally attending some conferences that you find a little questionable. And she said, yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> so, you know, some of it is a question of like, what harm is this actually doing? That comes back to the question of harm. But, you know, in her case, I think at the end of our conversation, she realized that, you know, it could be a lot worse. And I also like that I just thought of this. So if, if one thing you can do uh, to sort of heal yourself and to feel better about the world in general uh, in this terrible time is to walk dogs. You can also think about walking your dad. Yeah, walk your dad. Yeah, Just, Go walk, just dad. walk him around the block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. If you've been actually wondering about how that mission fits into Conspiracy Month, it is that conspiracy theorizing is the most extreme example of someone else holding a belief system that runs counter to what you believe. Because, remember, if you believe it, it's not a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories are always for other people. And the biggest lesson that I feel like I can take away from this month is the humility that comes with that realization. It's not that I can't judge other people for holding false beliefs because other people definitely hold false beliefs and some of them are dangerous. 
But holding false beliefs is a part of being human. It is a mistake and not a character flaw. Though, as with any mistake, it can be compounded into a tragedy if we don't do anything about it. I've also learned that you can't undo conspiracy theories, that they are immune to argument and logic, because a conspiracy theory is a rational response to someone's individual pain or even a whole culture's trauma. Conspiracy theories are, as Anna pointed out, a symptom and not a cause. They're a symptom of inequality or intolerance or both, and the only way to root them out is by introducing equality and justice, both of which take a lot longer than a news cycle or a family dinner or even a presidential term. I feel like that is good and bad news for us. The good news is that you don't have to worry about convincing people they're wrong, which is annoying and doesn't work anyway. And the bad news is that you and I, we, have harder work ahead. You have to do more than make conspiracy theories go away. You have to make them unnecessary. And it is true that with enough power, a government could make it impossible or very hard for people to spread conspiracy theories, and that is a solution that some people like. But I would argue that that level of state power is simply a lot of people's conspiracy thinking come true. If you want a world without harmful conspiracy theories, you're going to have to create a world where people don't wonder why they have been harmed. Inequality is always harder than peace. And on that note... I would like to wish everyone who celebrates it a happy Independence Day, a happy birthday to this deeply flawed but beautiful idea of a country whose tarnished beacon still brings hopeful dreamers to its doors. If you have justice and freedom in your life, please do what you can to share it with those who don't. And as always, take care of yourselves. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. 